Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, so we're going to be picking up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. We are slowly but surely making our way through the book of Ephesians. So if you want to find your way to Ephesians 5, we'll read that in just a few moments. But uh, really, this passage centers on the question of marriage, the Christ-centered marriage. What is a Christ-centered marriage? What does that look like? Now, marriage is susceptible to all kinds of attacks and struggles uh, these days um, from within. Uh, And what I mean by that is we bring all the necessary junk and baggage and ingredients for failure with us into our marriages, don't we? We bring our mess, we bring our past, we bring all of that stuff with us. But marriage is also under attack from the exterior, from without people calling into question the very institution or concept of marriage. Now, this last week I came across an article giving 10 reasons why it's better to never get married. 10 reasons why a person should actually never get married. Now, the first thing was that once married, a woman is going to just let herself go. That was what the author said. So, if you want to stay in good shape and look good, don't get married. Conversely, married men, according to the article, are more likely to be overweight and lazy. So there you have it. Now, worse than that, once you're married, according to this author, it becomes more complicated to have affairs and relationships on the side. So marriage apparently messes with your love life a little bit. Closely related to this, once you're married, you can kiss romance goodbye because married couples don't have a very good physical relationship. On top of this, marriage is expensive. Once you're married, you're going to discover all kinds of bills and expenses you never knew you you, you would ever have. Moreover, marriage stifles creativity. Marriage stifles spontaneity. Life will suddenly become boring once you're married. Next, according to the author, marriage can lead to the abhorrent reality of compromise. You might have to give a little bit to another person. You might have to put another person's needs in front of your own, above your own. Next, uh, marriage uh, really is too significant a, a time investment. You won't have me time anymore once you're married. Furthermore, marriage will most likely end in divorce anyway, so why get married in the first place? And the final thing the author mentioned is that marriage is an outdated institution established by the patriarchy for the purpose of subjugating women and stifling their ability to actualize themselves and live up to their full potential. Roughly, marriage is a nightmare. Nobody should ever engage in this, this, this contract. Now, honestly, this article was a sad and, I will say, disgusting example of the selfishness and the cynicism that pervades our world today. It's just where people are at. 
Now, we haven't done marriage God's way, and then when marriage fails, we blame God and attack marriage as a worn-out and destructive institution. It's kind of like purchasing a product that requires self-assembly, then refusing to read the instructions, then throwing the product away as a useless piece of junk all because we didn't bother to read the instructions. You see the problem. So contrary to the views of some people in our society, I want to exhort you, don't give up on the biblical concept of marriage. God has given it to his people as a metaphor for his relationship with the church. Marriage should point us to the cross of Jesus Christ. He's given us marriage for the good of the individual, the good of families, the good of the church, and the good of society as a whole. So like I mentioned, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, and I want to read verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We know that your word is a double-edged sword that penetrates our hearts and our minds, our soul. Lord, would you speak to us this morning through your word? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for us? Lord, I pray that each one of us would be drawn closer to you this morning through our study in your word. Help us to love Jesus more through this study. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now before we look at this passage in greater detail, I wanna clear a few things up for you because I understand that talk of submission inevitably creates some discomfort, okay? In the world we live in today, when we start talking about submission, we talk about headship, that kind of thing, it can create a little bit of discomfort, and that's okay. 
okay? We come to church to be uncomfortable sometimes. The word of God can make us a bit uncomfortable at times, but I do owe it to you to at least articulate the foundation stones on which I am crafting my message. Some of the assumptions with which I come to the text as we look at these difficult uh, themes. Now, I am, first of all, assuming something about the nature of Scripture. Whenever I preach, I'm assuming something about the nature of Scripture. I hold that these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, these are the inerrant words of God in the original form. God is the authority behind the text. This is not Paul's opinion rooted in some outdated first century beliefs about women. Okay? This is God's opinion rooted in a creation order that God himself has ordained according to his good pleasure and for his glory. So that a woman should submit to her husband or that a husband should love his wife as head of the wife, it's not my opinion, okay? I didn't say it. Paul didn't say it. God said it, okay? The second assumption with which I'm working here has to do with the nature of interpretation. Now, be aware that you live in a society that is repulsed by the idea that a woman, or man for that matter, should submit to anything for any reason. We also live in a society that is unable to inform men on what it truly means to love their wives. Now, 21st century Western cultural rejections of biblical marriage and gender roles have developed in a very long interdependent chain of theories that originate in academia and that find their way down into popular culture, okay? In other words, social trends will change with time. A lot of the bad ideas that we have oftentimes in the church, originated somewhere in academia, found their way into pop culture, and then show up in the church. We're usually about 20 years behind what the academy is doing, what the universities are doing, what, where these theories are coming from. And we're about 10 years behind pop culture. So I just want to warn you about that. Don't get your interpretations of scripture from Disney, okay? The third assumption, I am assuming something about the nature of truth and being when we approach this text, okay? I am flat out rejecting the concept of constructivism, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Constructivism concerning truth and human identity. Now, decades ago, under postmodernism, you probably heard of the term postmodernism, that was a thing a few decades ago where truth was relativized. It was your truth, about your interpretation of truth. Truth is what my peers let me get away with, that kind of thing. We've since moved past postmodernism into a kind of constructivism about truth, where people create truth now. The individual creates truth for himself about his being, identity. Um, you create yourself, essentially. You create your values. You create your moral responses to others. Again, I flat out reject that as complete nonsense. It's not rooted in reality, it's not rooted in scripture, okay? Our job is not to create truth, our job is to discover truth that is rooted in who God is as ultimate reality. The fourth thing I wanna mention this morning is I'm assuming something about human psychology when we come to this text, okay? I accept that we carry a lot of baggage with us. When we talk about marriage, there's a lot of hurt out there. 
You've maybe come from a broken home. You've gone through divorce. You've seen your parents divorced, that sort of stuff. There's a lot of pain involved with the discussion of marriage, and I want to just acknowledge that that is a reality. But I hope that as we study this passage, we see that God has a better thing for us, a better way for us. So my point in bringing up these, these notions is that when we lay the right foundation concerning revelation, interpretation, truth, and human identity, we are better positioned then to achieve a clear picture of God's redemptive or salvific plan for us. Okay, we need the right foundation. The 21st century Western mind is honestly repulsed by phrases like wives submit your husbands or the husband is the head of the wife. Now understand, God inspired these writings, these phrases for our good. And our responsibility is to look at these concepts in context and to do the hard work of getting to the root of what God wants for his dearly loved children as we become imitators of God, as it says in Ephesians 5.1. Now I want to ask you to go back and look again at this text. If you have your Bible open, I want to comb through this passage and look at some really key phrases here this morning. Go back to verse 22. You're going to notice it says, submit as to the Lord. Submit as to the Lord. Moving to verse 23. Christ is the head and savior of the church. Verse 24. The church submits to Christ. Verse 25. Christ loved the church. Verse 26. Christ purified and washed the church. Verse 27, Christ makes the church holy. Verse 29, Christ nourishes the church, sanctifying the church. Verse 32, Christ gives us marriage as an illustration of his redemptive work on the cross. Now, do you see a theme developing here a little bit? The theme is Jesus Christ is the hero of the story. See, if you want to understand the meaning of submission and love in marriage, look at Christ. If you want to understand the meaning of marriage, look at Christ. If you want to build a strong marriage, look at Christ. If you're struggling in your marriage, look to Christ. See, a healthy, successful marriage, according to what we read here in the text, does not make the husband the hero. A healthy, successful marriage does not make the wife the hero. A healthy, successful marriage makes Christ the hero. Christ is the center. His glory is at the center. That is what we see here in this passage. So as we look uh, closer at these, these two themes here, we have the husband and the wife both addressed separately. I want us to understand that we're dealing here with a Christ-centered submission and a Christ-centered love. So first, a wife's submission to her husband is a witness to the centrality of Christ in her life, in her marriage, in the church. Now, the concept of submission is actually carried over from verse 21. The word submit does not actually, in Greek, show up in verse 22. This is a long sentence that Paul has written. And so we have this idea of, of submission in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it goes on to address the wife in the same context, okay? So the idea here is that the wife is supposed to submit, but what is biblical submission? What does that mean? Now, submission in this context is not 
inferiority in dignity or value, but a voluntary agreement to defer to an authority, an authority structure that's rooted in creation, okay? So submission is a recognition of and a respect for the authority structures God has ordained for the good of the family, for the good of the church, and for the good of society. Now, even the most collaborative leadership teams or styles still require some degree of authority structure in order to function well. And in the home, that structure requires the headship of the husband. So in the broader context of Ephesians 4 and 5, a woman who submits to her husband as to Christ in everything is a woman who recognizes God's intention that she and her husband function together in unity under the headship of Christ and of the husband for their good. Now understand, as, as we've worked our way through Ephesians, you can really break the book of Ephesians up into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 deal very heavily in the theology of God, who God is. They help us understand the Trinity these chapters help us understand the human condition and how Christ steps into that and brings life out of death. Now, as we get into chapters four through six, we're looking more at the practical implications of these doctrines for the Christian life. What does it look like to be a follower of Christ, to walk in unity, to walk in submission to one another, to walk in love, to put off the old self, to put off the darkness and to walk in the light? And we see that here in this text. God is calling the husband and wife to a particular kind of relationship for the good of the couple and for the good of the church. So look at verse 23. Submission is not about who is smarter. It's not about who's stronger. It's not about who's more mature or who's better looking in the marriage. It's about a Christian woman's willingness to model the relationship that exists between Christ and his church, okay? Now, this may raise some questions, naturally. You might be sitting here wondering, how am I supposed to submit to my husband when he behaves like an insensitive bonehead or something of that nature? Now, submission definitely is a challenge when the wife is forced to carry the responsibility of the marriage alone. And we can see problems in the marriage on two fronts with, with the husband. Sometimes what we see is a husband exhibiting kind of a, a heavy-handedness, authoritarian kind of domination over his wife that can border on abuse or become abuse. On the other side, we can see men at times exhibiting passivity, unwillingness to engage, unwillingness to lead, unwillingness to support their wives. So we have heavy-handedness on one side, the absent husband on the other. And passivity is a major yet really overlooked problem in marriages today. See, the passive husband flees the relationship by filling his life with any and every activity or commitment possible that will prevent him from having to talk to his wife or to help guide her decisions or to discipline the children or structure the activities of the family. A passive husband doesn't pray for his wife or encourage instruction in the word or make himself available to nurture his wife or listen to his wife or provide feedback or care. Now, it's, it's understandably hard to submit in a situation like this. But remember, the ultimate call is submission to Jesus Christ. 
Submitting under challenging circumstances may be an opportunity to bear witness to God's grace, to sanctify a husband who is not fulfilling his, his role or the role to which he was appointed. Wives, ultimately, your submission is not about you and it's not about him, it is about Jesus Christ. Now, there was a pastor, John Piper, who gave uh, an interesting analogy or illustration to help understand this. I'm going to borrow this from him. But imagine jumping out of an airplane while encumbered by a helmet and goggles and a big, bulky parachute. Imagine that. Now, you might think you are carrying an unhelpful burden of all of this extra equipment as you jump from the plane especially if you want to feel the freedom of the exhilaration of, of skydiving with no restrictive gear around you. But understand, the gear serves a purpose and actually saves your life and protects you from injury. Now, we might think that submission or love or these sacrifices that the husband and wife are called to, they may feel like a burden at times. Understand, though, that that burden actually is there for our good. Now, when we submit, we submit ultimately to Jesus Christ. Christ who loves us, who nourishes us in the faith. Jesus tenderly corrects us. He tenderly rebukes us. He teaches us how to live for him. He repairs the effects of our sin, of our shame. See, submitting to Christ means to take his yoke of love and his burden of grace. Submission becomes an honor. It can become an honor, a privilege, when we're submitting to someone who is honorable and who desires our ultimate good. So submission to authority is a pleasure when we're submitting to someone who has our good in mind. The church is most healthy when it's in submission to Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 is that a wife is given the responsibility and really the privilege of witnessing to her husband and of proclaiming Jesus Christ to her community by means of her submission to her husband. Now, Christ-centered submission is followed in the text by Christ-centered love. Okay, we can't have one without the other. In fact, much more space is actually given in this passage to the husband's role in modeling Christ-like love in the marriage. So what does it look like for a husband to love his wife? Well, again, we need to look at Christ. Jesus loved his bride, the church, by giving up his life to save her, his bride. He tenderly sacrificed himself, and he, he tenderly sanctifies the church. He makes her holy through the word. That is, he makes her a better person, you see. He's building her up. He improves her by helping her grow in her gifting and her strength. So for men, this means laying aside your autonomy, your individual desires. It means using your strengths and your gifts to help your wife grow into a better and more sanctified version of herself. To love means that you are no longer living for yourself. You're living for your bride. Now, as with the wife, so too there are some natural questions that might arise in the mind of some men today. You might wonder, well, how am I supposed to love my wife when she acts like an intolerable bog witch? Right? There may be times that's just how you feel. Right? We've all been through those, those conflicts and times where we just can't stand each other. Well, here's how you do it. 
Look at Christ. Look at Christ. See, look at who Jesus has to put up with in the Bible. Us, right? Men, when you're struggling with loving your wife, it's helpful to actually go, go back to the Old Testament prophets. Look at Isaiah, Jeremiah. Read the book of Hosea. Look at what God has to put up with. See, God loved his bride, his people, in spite of their perpetual idolatry, their pathological sin, their incessant complaining and rebellion. Numerous times in the Old Testament, Israel is compared to a whore. That's the language of the prophets. Israel is compared to a whore who prostituted herself to the nations through idolatry. Understand that Jesus essentially gave his life to save people who hated him and continually rebelled against him. While we were sinners, while we hated God, while we were dead in our transgressions, Christ died for the ungodly. I doubt your wife hates you, though you might deserve it at times. Are you leading her by loving her? Remember, Christ is the hero of the marriage. Marriage is a metaphor. God gives us marriage so we can grow in our understanding of his relationship to his people, so that we can be sanctified in in, in the virtues that are required in order to live in a marriage relationship. And Paul actually makes it clear that marriage is modeled after the cross. Look at these verses where it says, a man will leave his, his father and his mother and he'll be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Well, where does he get that? He gets it from Genesis. You've got to go back to Genesis chapters one and two where we see this creation of the first man and woman. All right, that's what Paul is borrowing from here. Now that's interesting. It seems a bit anachronistic How can marriage be modeled on the cross when marriage came before the cross? How does that all all work? Well, understand that God has a redemptive plan that he has put in place and established before the very foundation or creation of the world. Ephesians 1 talked about that, right? You were predestined, chosen in love before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God already had the cross in mind before he even established marriage. Marriage was always intended to be a metaphor, a sign pointing us to the reality of the cross of Jesus Christ. So the concept of love and submission is creational. It's not patriarchal. It's creational. It's rooted in creation itself. I've always appreciated learning from the examples of love that I see in couples that are much older and more experienced than myself I remember a particular couple I knew in a church in the past. They were in their 80s. They'd been married for over 60 years. They attended faithfully. She had lost most of her eyesight at this point. The effects of age were were taking hold. But they would always sit near the front of the church. And I remember every Sunday when it came time for the sermon, when I'd go up to the the pulpit, he he would open her Bible for her to the passage that was being preached that day and set it on her lap before turning to his own Bible. And it was such a, a, such a simple gesture. I doubt anyone ever even really noticed. But to me, that was such a powerful example of the tenderness, the care, the love that we should see modeled in marriage. 
It was such a simple thing. An example of the nurturing care that Christ shows for his bride, the church. See, just as love and submission within the Christian life is about this, it's a bi-directional relationship between the individual and Christ, so too in marriage do we have this kind of bi-directional relationship. See, the submission and the love, they have to work together. You see that in the text? See how that works? Submission only works well when love works well. Think of it this way. You can't drive half a car. See, there's absolutely no way to cut a motor vehicle in half, in any direction, in any way, and have a a fully functioning, useful piece of equipment. It just doesn't work. You can't shoot baskets with half a basketball, with half a sphere. You can't dribble half a sphere. You can't shoot half a sphere. You need the whole thing intact. Half a marriage doesn't work. This is why we're called to both love and submission. Now, the principles of this text, I want to say, apply not only to married couples, but to those who have been married and maybe no longer are, to those who are not yet married but would like to be, and to those who will never be married. There's something in here for all of us. You see, each member of a church, no matter where they stand in context of marriage, has an obligation to uphold and protect what God has created and to model the cross of Jesus Christ. So whether you're married or single, marriage is not ultimately about you. Marriage is not ultimately about you. It's about the love of Jesus Christ for his church. It's about Jesus laying down his life for his bride and the bride revering Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. So as the bride of Christ, we're going to celebrate communion as we normally do. Um, We're gonna have this time together. We're gonna be reflecting on what we've heard in this passage. Jesus and his love for his church. Now, we are the bride, you see. We are the people of God. And God has instructed us in his word to take communion, to do this out of reverence for Christ. So if you haven't picked up the communion elements, there are some here in the front, and there's also a table in the back. So please pick up uh, the bread and the, and the wine. And I want to read to you from the book of First Corinthians. And this is where the Apostle Paul gives us some instruction in communion, the meaning of communion. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we are announcing publicly our faith in the work of Jesus Christ at the cross when we take communion. Then he goes on and says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. 
Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So not only do we worship the Lord through our time in communion, but we're also using this time to examine our hearts, to examine where, what is our standing before the Lord? Have I received the Lord as my Savior? Am I walking in obedience to Jesus Christ? So I want to just give you a few moments to reflect before we take the elements together. took the bread and he said this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me next he took the cup and said this cup is the blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins do this in remembrance of me Heavenly Father, again, we, we thank you for our time in your word this morning, for the ways that your word challenges us, it instructs us, corrects us, even rebukes us at times. Lord, we ask that as we go from this place, we would remember what we saw in this passage, that this is about you. Lord, would we be drawn nearer to you today? in worship of our Lord and Savior. Lord, we thank you for giving us marriage that points us to the cross. We thank you for the wonder, the beauty of marriage. Lord, I pray for the marriages of families, couples in this room, those who've been married, those who will one day be married, those who you've called to, to be single. Lord, I pray that no matter where we find ourselves, that we would uphold this covenant relationship that you have ordained for us to honor it and to allow it to bring us again and again back to the foot of the cross in repentance in jesus name amen